Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, everybody. I'm on vacation in northern Minnesota with uh, two of my grandkids, Joe, who's nine, and uh, Avery is six. We're at a lodge uh, that uh, Fran and I love, and we took them fishing for the first time, and they loved it. I was planning on not working this week, so instead I recorded a conversation with Marty Short a couple weeks ago and uh, planned to run it with an introduction that I pre-recorded. And that's uh, what you're going to hear in about uh, 10, uh, 15 minutes. And I will tell you, it, it is a fun one, you know for a change uh oh i know al you say your shows are always so substantive and and enriching but i've never found substance and enrichment fun al and i know exactly what you're talking about well today finally a fun one because martin short is my guest will you learn anything valuable no no martin has nothing to teach us. Actually, that's not at all true. Marty, to me, is the consummate entertainer. He, he does it all. Your singing, your dancing, your uh, impressions, your characters. So you're going to have fun and learn a lot. You're going to have fun and learn a lot, you know, like going to camp. But first, since Marty and I uh, chatted, uh, we've had two uh, Earth shaking events one very very bad the scotus decision overturning roe a tragic decision and one that arrived in a, a very disturbing ugly way and bodes very ill for the future of the court and i want to talk about that then uh, also uh, cassie hutchinson's testimony as i have been saying all along the hearings have wildly exceeded my expectations and yet Nothing has shocked me, least of which the ketchup against the wall. I'm surprised they hadn't painted that wall red after he'd been there just a couple months. But Jesus Christ, this was bad for Donald Trump. Wow. The magnetometers, uh, why aren't you letting everyone in? <laughs> uh, they're heavily armed, Mr. President. Well, take the fucking mags away. They're not here to hurt me. The subtext being, they're not here to hurt me, moron. They're here to kill Pelosi and AOC and, if necessary, Mike, who, by the way, I never liked anyway. Okay, so much for Ron Johnson claiming the rioters were Antifa. And I love the Giuliani stuff. Hutchinson testified that on January 2nd, Giuliani was at the White House. And as she walked him out to his car, he said, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. We're, we're going to the Capitol on January 6th. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. You know, Rudy, corrupt, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. 
And then Rudy tells her, talk to the chief about it, meaning, of course, Mark Meadows, chief staff. Well, she goes to his office and asks about what Giuliani had told her, and Meadows replies, uh, there's a lot going on, Cass. Um, I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and Hutchinson testified that Giuliani was part of a gang with John Eastman and Roger Stone and others that had set up a war room at the Willard Hotel. Now, Stone was in close contact that week with the Oath Keepers, who escorted him, and the Proud Boys, both of which have been indicted by the Justice Department for seditious conspiracy by Merrick Garland's Justice Department. So they've got that case pretty nailed down, I would, I would suspect. And Hutchinson testified that Meadows was just dying to get over to the Willard War Room all day on January 5th, but finally had to settle for just, as she put it, dialing in. She also said that Meadows spoke that day with another friend of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, Michael Flynn, who, in video testimony, took the fifth when asked, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? Which would have been incriminating, yes or no? My guess, both. How's that for a pickle? So, Meadows, you know, when he reportedly asked for a pardon, I, I, I doubt he was thinking about the election fraud case against him. I have a suspicion that he will cop a plea after being told, Mr. Meadows, you're looking at 20 years. How would you like to reduce that to 90 days at a facility where you can work on your tennis game? I have been saying since the beginning that all you need to prosecute Trump is the Raffensperger call. If you don't find 11,780 votes, you'll be taking a big risk, pal. The Fulton County DA is all over that, but it's a federal election, and that's a federal crime. Well, after Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony that Donald Trump exhorted a crowd that he knew was armed to march to the Capitol and fight, it's all over. They have to prosecute him. And Remember, there are more hearings. And then there is the Supreme Court. It's an illegitimate court. I was on the Judiciary Committee when the Republicans refused to take up Merrick Garland. It, it was supposedly about what Mitch McConnell called the Biden rule, referring to a floor speech that Biden had given in June 1988 when he was chairman of, of the Judiciary Committee. The SCOTUS term was ending. No justice had died. There were nine living justices. Biden said that it was a presidential election year if a justice retired at the end of the term. Retired, not died. Not died in February, but retired at the end of June. That he and the Democrats would take up a nomination to replace him or her. Could have been O'Connor. If the nominee were a moderate or... If President Bush, that's George H.W. Bush, consulted with the Democrats on the committee, that is what Biden said in his floor speech. McConnell lied. 
He said that Biden had said simply that he would refuse to take up a nominee in a presidential election year. Biden had not said that. And I read Biden's speech aloud to my Republican colleagues on the Judiciary Committee in business meetings. I did this several times. And I noted that Scalia had died in February. He didn't voluntarily die so he could be replaced by a younger conservative, which is what Biden was talking about in June of 88. Of course, the Republicans didn't care. It's a presidential election year. Ballots have already been cast in New Hampshire. Let the American people decide who replaces Scalia. This was a coup. You may remember this from Lindsey Graham. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. Cut to Coney Barrett being sworn in a week before the 2020 election. Now, why didn't my former Democratic colleagues quote that over and over and over again in her confirmation hearing, over which Lindsey Graham presided? Uh, You said, Mr. Chairman, use my words against me. Well, let me do that. You said if there's a Republican president in 2016, and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination, and you can use my words against me, and you'd be absolutely right. And I am. I'm absolutely right. So I'm going to do it again. If there's a Republican... So let's talk about how radical this illegitimate court is. When Coney Barrett was a law professor at Notre Dame, she put her name on a full-page ad sponsored by St. Joseph County Right to Life in the South Bend Tribune that stated, we the citizens of Michiana, that's right, Michiana, that's evidently Michigan and Indiana, Michiana, I believe that's the country where the handmaid's tale is said. We, the citizens of Michiana, oppose abortion on demand and defend the right to life from fertilization to natural death. And this group, of which Amy Coney Barrett was a member, meant fertilization. This group wanted to criminalize, criminalize in vitro fertilization. They said this. They want to send fertility doctors, reproductive endocrinologists who do in vitro fertilization, they want to send them to prison. That's what they said, presumably for murder, because in in vitro fertilization, they routinely fertilize many eggs, and they freeze them and dispose of the extras when they're either finally successful or it just won't work. The Dobbs decision is a radical decision. You know, a lot of people point to the fact that in some states, they are planning to outlaw abortion in cases of incest or rape, and that is disgusting. But make no mistake, this decision is going to mean that a lot of women will die. Which brings me to Marty Short. Oh, oh, and don't get me started on the EPA decision. 
And on the podcast next week, the great Dahlia Lithwick will review the entire SCOTUS term. Do not miss that. She is great. Back to Marty Short. Marty and I are friends, and uh, he is part of the Los Angeles Canadian liberal elite. So uh, we talk a little hearings, but mostly I, I wanted to explore how does a Marty Short become a Marty Short? How how he started in Toronto? He started in a production, this legendary production of Godspell with a cast that included Gilda Radner, Paul Schaefer, Andrea Martin, uh, Eugene Levy. And we talk about his long history with Steve Martin. Of course, the second season of their, their Hulu show, Only Murders in the Building, uh, just premiered last week. Last season, Franny and I watched every Tuesday night and thoroughly enjoyed every episode, a necessary break uh, from the horror that we see every day in the world and uh, here in our country. And I hope that this conversation will do that for you. It's a fun one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language, immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You've been in show business long enough to know you can't eat while we're doing this, right? No, I just learned that. Two days. <laughs> I was having a submarine sandwich and I was doing uh, a PSA for uh, healthcare. Well, thanks for doing this. Anything for you. Well, uh, that's very nice of you to say. Very nice of you to say. So um, I think you're the most entertaining person in show business. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and I meant that as a all as a compliment. I mean. No, I understand. How could I <laughs> interpret that as an insult? Okay. And you do it all. 
uh, singing, uh, comedy, do these amazing impressions. Uh, you do these characters, the, the, the Jiminy Glicks, the, uh, Nason Thurm, by the way, is my, I think maybe my favorite. <laughs> the Ed Grimleys, uh, you do everything. You're just the complete entertainer. A, uh, you really can't do drama, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've tried, haven't you? And you've seen just, my work then. Yes. No, 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 that's absolutely not true. <laughs> I, I'll have you know I was nominated for an Emmy. For a drama? For a little series I like to call Damages. That was the name of the limited series? That was the limited series starting Glenn Close. Oh, my God. I didn't see that. So you can do that, too. Well, there it is. See, it, see what I'm saying? The insult didn't land. And it kind of lacked luster initially anyway. Thank you. Um, speaking of insulting people uh, <laughs> as, as a, a humorous light motif, I want to talk about Jiminy Glick. <laughs> And then the origins of Jiminy Glick. And I think I've heard you say that you were on a junket and a uh, junket being you're on a press tour for something and you're always getting uh, obviously uh, local critics. <laughs> yes, that's true. And no, it was always it, that Jiminy Glick was an amalgamation of a lot of things. You know, there was a guy that I had when I was doing a television show, he was in, you know, some sort of, um, production i never really knew what he would but he had a laugh that i would hear down the hallway ha, 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 ha. <laughs> well someday i have to make uh someday. character have that laugh so that's you know and jiminy also has the very high and the very low the very high very low was a neighbor <laughs> growing up who had if you stayed off his lawn for the year, you had to go to his movie theater which he ran you know, <laughs> it was up and down <laughs> So that's two of the pieces of it. But the, the, to me, it is what I love about uh, Jiminy is that he is a, uh, uh, starts as a fan in the interview and then very quickly moves to some very insulting and, and just keeps doing that, right? Under the guise of, uh, I don't mean this negatively. <laughs> you know, so it was weird with Jiminy because certain characters like Nathan Thurm, I would really write. And memorize. It was exact rhythms, you know. Nathan Thurm, is, for, for people who don't remember Nathan, is this completely paranoid kind of spokesman for things, right? Well, he really did become, um, <laughs> you know, like Kellyanne Conway or those people where, you know, they're cornered by logic. <laughs> they immediately deny what they've just said. And when yes. really cornered, they attack the person. You know, so if Chris Guest was interviewing me as Nathan Thurman SNL when I was a cast member, eventually I'd say, yeah, well, of course, I'm, I know that, but I'm confused <laughs> because you're so boring and you're so very bland facially. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of like, why, why don't you think I know that? Yes, I know. But it was like <laughs> some of those uh, Stephen Miller types, you know. And I, I love the cigarette ash. The trick was to putting a wire in your cigarette so it, that would keep the ash on. <laughs> the little trick. Everyone should go uh, to YouTube and find a Nathan Thurm okay. because to me, it's, um, I think the classic, the first one might have been the tobacco guy, right? Is it? Uh, that's correct. We appreciate your willingness to talk with us tonight. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, simply that we want to thank you for taking time out from your schedule. 
why wouldn't I be able to take time off from my schedule? So interesting that you think I wouldn't be able to take time off from my schedule. As if the tobacco industry's case was so weak that defending it took up all my time. It's so funny that you would think that. It's so funny. Well, Mr. Thurm. <laughs> So uh, Jiminy, if let's say Jiminy were uh, interviewing you, right? Where would he go after you? Where would? Because <laughs> you don't write these. Like, you... you know, <laughs> nobody'd say. You know, you have tremendous appeal, and this is while at the same time pushing too hard. <laughs> now, my favorite Jiminy line, I must admit, was uh, to Mel Brooks when I said, "What's your big beef with the Nazis?" <laughs> And Mel said, oh, I don't know, they're rude. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's your big beef with the Nazis? What's my big beef? Yes, it seems like you're always What's knocking. What's my big beef Everything with the Nazis? You're always knocking the Nazis. Oh, let's, it's, it's time for Mel Brooks to knock the Nazis, <laughs> it seems. Oh, I don't know, I think they're rude. I guess, I guess. That was partly your experience being on Junkets and being interviewed by these these guys, right? Right, yeah. But also, I was doing a talk show for a year for King World in daytime in 1999, 2000. And I also was just looking for a way to get more celebrities on the show. So I mm -hmm. created one of these reporters to, that, who would do Junkets. And then I would go and interview Tom Hanks on the set or Alec Baldwin. And it became that thing. Ed Grimley, you came up with, I, I know it was an SCTV character, right? The first time I did Ed Grimley was on Second City Stage in Toronto in 1977. Okay, well, let's talk about Toronto. Yeah. There are some people from Toronto who are still in comedy <laughs> 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 that you uh, knew at the time, and the Godspell cast is legendary. What's that, 1972? Uh, that was uh, 1972, the spring. And that was, you know, Gilda Radner and Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin and Paul Schaefer, Victor Garber. That's amazing. Now, Godspell was a comedy? Yeah, it was a musical comedy and, and it was based on the book of St. Matthew and the vignettes and the parables would be as funny as the people doing them. Have you seen a, uh, a production of Godspell that had, like, a, a not-funny cast? Have you seen that? Have, well, I mean, I haven't seen enough? I mean, I, I've seen <laughs> cast. All the casts are kind of, you know, because they sing and they dance. I'm always amazed when I see anything on Broadway or off-Broadway. Mm -hmm. I can't believe the, the amount of talent on that stage, even if the show doesn't work. But, um, no, no, I'm just saying, that, you know, look, you had Gilda doing Lily Tomlin, and, you know, it was, it was a particularly strong comedic show. That production. Gilda was one of the uh, original SNL players. Of course. Uh, Eugene, of course, uh, uh, SCTV. Schaefer, Paul Schaefer. Now, do you do Paul's laugh? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so you had Paul and, and, and Aykroyd was up in Toronto then, right? Yes. Well, I first met Danny. At, you know, I have a slight Rain Man thing for names and dates. I met Danny June 28th, 1972, at Gilda Radner's birthday party. And uh, Danny and his then comedy partner, Valerie Bromfield, were playing Gilda's parents from Detroit. And they never <laughs> broke character. <Okay. laughs> and I thought, I'd never met anyone like that. And then I, you know, then I went over <laughs> to Gilda, and, and I remember one time driving Danny and Valerie in the back seat, and I was driving Gilda's white Volvo. And I was deliberately getting lost because I'd never heard people funnier. 
I didn't want the ride to end. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing group of people all in one place. And of course, some of them, Eugene and you, went on to do SCTV. Andrea Martin, friggin' hilarious. Yeah. Did I not mention uh, Andrea Martin? Oh, my dear God, I'll be killed. Andrea's my uh, sister-in-law. She is married to... She, um, she was married to my wife's brother. Ah, so I am the uncle to her children, for example. Oh, so nice. She's amazingly hilarious. Boy, oh boy. And the SCTV cast included other brilliant... I mean, just an amazing oh, amount of them. Dave Thomas. Uh, Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis, yes. Catherine yeah. O'Hara. <laughs> Catherine O'Hara. Oh, Catherine O'Hara. Uh, who am I? Uh, and, and, and I think I'm still Flaherty, forgetting. Of course. Flaherty. Yeah. Fucking hilarious, yeah. Flaherty. <laughs> <laughs> Count, well, Count Floyd, right? Count Floyd. And then you did those on a shoestring. Well, I mean, by the time, I, you know, it, there, were, there were different variations of, of SETV. I mean, it started in 1976 on a real shoestring. But by the time I joined it, which was 1982, it had now already won Emmys. It was a 90-minute form. It was NBC. So it had a, we had a good budget. I heard that that you can't repeat, they can't repeat some of the early shows anywhere because they stole the music. You had no budget, so you uh, use illegally use music. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's treasures there yeah. that. Well, we had to go in and remix them, I think. You know, do that five change note thing. I was doing Jerry Lewis live at the Champs Elysees. And um, I'm singing, walk on, walk on, <laughs> hope in your heart. And, but then when we released on DVD, I had to go back in and go, walk on, walk on, with hope in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we don't get sued. Uh, that's so. Loop it, yeah. Okay, so those are, now you do impressions uh, and some of the great impressions. Uh, the Betty Davis, uh, famously, there's on YouTube a thing of you doing it to Betty Davis. She that was seems, insane. That was hilarious. That was insane. Who, who haven't we covered? You're working on anything? Anybody? Uh, let's see. Um, did you I, do me? Do I, do I do you? Yes. Well, I mean, you aren't that easy to do. Then we'll skip it. I just wanted to know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know what's so great about that clip is, and I have no idea why suddenly that clip about a year ago became like, you looked at it, it had six million views or something. Yes. But I think that Johnny's <laughs> face and reaction to all that is just hysterical. Oh, that's why it was Johnny. Yeah. Let's go to the singing. You just did, Lewis. You loved singing. And, yes, and I if I'm if I'm not wrong, didn't you want to be a singer more than anything? Oh, right? absolutely, absolutely. I I, <laughs> um, I have an album that I made at um, fifteen, actually probably fourteen, um, <laughs> okay. and it's Martin Short sings of songs and loves ago. Wow! And what I'd done is I'd taken a Frank Sinatra album, September of my years, and so mm -hmm. I would. With my tape recorder go click one day you turn around and sing a song a cappella, but I'd have to be in Frank's keys. He was fifty, I was fourteen, you know. And then I did that whole album I worked on in, in a kind of an echoey part of my attic bedroom so it had, you know, the voice sounded better. 
you kind of knew show business was your uh, goal early. No, I, I never thought it was a goal. I thought it was like a hobby. You know, I was really? in Hamilton, Ontario. I wasn't in New York. So it seemed, if I saw an ad for Disneyland, it looked like I was seeing something on Neptune. You know, I never thought, uh, it never seemed like a realistic choice. So that's why I went into medicine. That's really interesting because I, was, uh, I did a podcast with Odenkirk. He said the same thing. Yeah. And he was starting to write comedy like when he was in fifth grade, <laughs> right? He was like writing stuff. But he, for the life of him, did not think anyone goes into show business, right? No. And no. same with me. I mean, in Minnesota, I'm right. doing comedy in school. This is something I tell everybody who says, how do I get started in comedy? I tell parents to tell their kids, every school has a stage and they want you. And when you're in school, all the adults want you to go on the stage. And after you leave school, no one wants you to get on a stage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you went into pre-med, you didn't think I'm going to do this, but then you did. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I found myself after two years of pre-meds, I was so aware that I was just drawn toward the idea of being a doctor. I was a fan of Richard Chamberlain's work on Dr. Kilder. <laughs> so I then switched to social work, which allowed me now to do, for the first time, theater and productions and stuff like that at my university and still do the schooling. Because when you're in medicine, you have no time other than... Sure, pre-med is you know. organic chemistry. Right. All that. Then after four years of university, I was going to do a master's in social work. And I was encouraged by Eugene Levy to take a year off and try to come to Toronto, which was 40 miles away, and try to be an actor. Because he said, I think you're talented. And I think, you know, you should try. You should give it a shot. And so I thought, I didn't want to look in the mirror at 50 and say, why didn't you try that? And I, I wanted to go, oh, yeah, I remember you did try that. And no one hired you. So I gave myself a year contract. And, and and that's when Godspell happened. Yeah, I got Godspell when I was still in university. I, I I was it was right away. So so then I would renew my contract from year to year, and then finally I just knew I was stuck. Renew your contract to myself. In other words, I didn't want to be twenty eight and really broke with no direction. You know, I, I just and I knew, that and that's what you thought showbiz was. Well, going I to. thought the odds were, uh, you know, the odds are kind of against you. It's not like, yeah. you know, my son Henry graduated from Notre Dame business and 98% of graduates are placed in major jobs after that. Right. That's not true if you graduate from Juilliard. <laughs> sure. You know, Dana Carvey once said to me, there's no reason to be a comedian unless you have to be a comedian. <laughs> but I don't think I had to be, truthfully. I think I just... um I really had fun doing it and got work. So it allowed me to have more fun. <laughs> okay. Well, there's that then. Okay. You fall in with this group and of, of genius, genius comedians. Yeah. Oh, oh, I know what I wanted to go back to. I wanted to go back to your musical taste. So I'm the same age. That's where I was going. And to me, it was the Beatles. I'm like a normal person our age yeah and and you were sinatra and tony bennett yeah and uh but just also the, beatles, that also the beatles i love the beatles but i was learning to sing from sinatra and tony bennett 
Mm-hmm. You know, I've had this conversation with Harry Connick where we were both obviously different generations, but he was 15 at one point and I was 15 at one point and we're listening to Sinatra hold a note in Old Man River. Gets a little drunk and your lands in jail. I gets weary breath. And so that's, I learned how to sing from listening to that stuff. And placement with Tony, you know, up in the... Tony back. Bennett. Yeah. Did you think I'm going to be a singer in show business rather than... Well, again, I mean, I, I think I, I never thought I was going to be in show business. You know, I had a fictitious television show in my attic where I'd have guests, but I never took it seriously like Odenkirk. <laughs> and, and, um, and then suddenly my first job was a musical, so I was singing everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. Tell us about the fictitious musical then, uh, when you're fictitious. television show, I had a, a deal with NBC. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, I was like Mondays at 8 p.m., but every other Monday, because it allowed me time for my fictitious film career. Uh, but in other words, I, I was so big, <laughs> I could kind of call my own schedule. And I would have guests... And I was all done through my reel to reel. And then I would type things up for TV guide highlights. And then I wow. a medley of songs that weren't nominated and someone would go dinner. And then I, you know, I pause it. And you're still asserting that you didn't have to go in the show. <laughs> that you didn't. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. That's, that's well, maybe, really I, maybe I should rethink my theories. Yeah. Yeah. So I watch you. I've watched you and Steve do your show. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, by the way, part of the reason we're timing it this way is that only murders uh, in the building is premiering. Yes, love the show. Watched uh, every episode. Thank you. Uh, season two is beginning. You've been working with Steve since uh, was Three Amigos the first time you worked. Yes, with him? I met Steve um, back to the Rain Man thing, uh, July thirteenth. 1985. And I know that because I have little tricks of knowing that. And when the trick was that I remember I had done a Dave Letterman appearance. I had finished my year in SNL with Dick Eversall and I'd done a, a, a Letterman uh, appearance. And then I went to Lorne Michaels' apartment to discuss this Western. And I was flying to LA the next day. Discuss the Western that he was pitching to you. Yeah. Well, that he was, they were interested in me. Um, in four, which was three amigos. And so right. as a third amigo. And then the next day I flew to LA and I, then I went to Steve's house and met him and picked up a script. My Joe, we, we talked about this in our show and I say, you know, I saw all his works of art and I said, how did you get this rich? Cause I've seen your work. And he yes. said, here's a script for three amigos. And wherever you see Rick Moranis, name, just cross it out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay, good. And that's sort of the relationship you have on stage. Yeah, and and that's, and that's, so then we made that movie. And, you know, when you make movies, it's very interesting because you might be in, Mm -hmm. you know, Yugoslavia for three months or something. And then you never see those people again. And Steve and I, I think, and Chevy all made a determination that we wouldn't let that happen. You know, and then Steve and I did many films together. Where did, okay, Frank. Uh, where where did the Frank from that was the creation of of the um, you know Charles Shire and Nancy Myers they wrote it I mean they yes this is of course the uh, uh, father, of the, father bride. of the bride and yeah. Frank is the wedding planner that's right 
Did they say what his accent was? No, <laughs> no. I, I mean, I, I played around with that. And I remember they were, they were the first day we shot, they were a little nervous about it because, so it was a studio, because it was a sincere movie and this was a heightened character. My premise was always, hey, go and pick up your shirts. There's a guy working there that's bigger than Frank, and he's, he's not trying to make a movie. He's just living. Characters exist in our life, you know. As long as it doesn't look like I'm trying to be funny, we'll be fine. But we would do many takes where he hit his accent do good not like the law. And then it would turn it down and turn it down and turn it down. And I remember at one point Steve said, Well, I don't get the joke. Now I understand him perfectly. So we'd turn it up again, you know, to find what that level was. So they did it though and edited it together to create the character. So there's some over the top stuff there that Oh yeah, well I think it. that's what actors should do when they're making you know, doing try give this range of, and then the other uh, choice will be obvious in the middle. There was a, a line of yours that I uh, used to bond with uh, some of my colleagues in the Senate, uh, some of the older ones. Uh, there's a senator's bathroom uh, off the Senate floor. And the line I would use uh, when standing at a urinal next to a colleague of mine is, uh, the only time I don't have to pee is when I'm peeing. <laughs> and man, oh, man, that always got a laugh and just, <laughs> boom, they're my friend. <laughs> Another Jiminy Glick question, though, about the same subject was, do you think urinal dividers take the fun out of urinals? <laughs> my first week I'm there. In the Senate, we have the Sotomayor hearings. Right. <laughs> and it gets to me, I'm last. I'm the most junior. I've been there a week and, or less. And she says that she became prosecutor because she watched Perry Mason. And I said, why did you become a prosecutor in a, uh, fr from a, a show where the prosecutor lost every case? And she said, well, actually, you lost one case. And then I went, okay, well, I got a lot of questions here. That was just my intro to her. Yeah. And then at the end, I had I had a 30-minute question period, and I had like a minute and a half left over at the end. I couldn't develop something else. So I went, okay, just curiously, what was the case that Perry Mason lost? And she said, I don't know. Everyone had been looking for me to be funny, and I was avoiding it. But I, when she said, I don't know, and I said, didn't the White House prepare you? <laughs> and it gets this big laugh, and then suddenly I get all this press. Al Franken has to be funny. Okay, so now we go to, this is over, our questioning of her later, and we go into the uh, hearing room, uh, our normal judiciary hearing room, and we're getting an FBI clearance. They started doing since Clarence Thomas thing happened. You have to have this, like, official meeting where we sit down to hear anything bad about the person, because they knew something bad about Clarence Thomas happened because they had that meeting. Right. So now they just perfunctory have this meeting. So we go in the meeting with nothing to do. We have to just sit there for 15 minutes with nothing to do. Tom Coburn from Oklahoma goes like, actually, Perry Mason lost two cases. <laughs> and now it's, it's all over the internet. People are talking about Perry Mason. And Sessions, Jeff Sessions goes, I like Dragnet. <laughs> And then uh, Cornyn says, you know, I really like Highway Patrol. And then I say, you know, I worked with Broderick Crawford. And they all go, what? 
And and Broderick, uh, Crawford had hosted the show. I remember. Yeah. And they went, what was he like? And while well, he was drunk all week. Did, did you, <laughs> and, you told them that. Yeah. Yeah. But now I had won their respect. Finally, <laughs> I had won my Senate seat in one of the narrowest victories ever. I was the 60th Democrat uh, in, you know, at the time. So we could end up passing the ACA. But the thing that made them like go like, oh, you're a real person worthy of respect was I had worked with Broderick Crawford. Well, you know, I do think, though, that the most open we are to that kind of celebrity thing is when you're 12. Yes. Yeah. So when he was 12, he was watching Highway Patrol. And it's like, I remember um, meeting Tony Curtis, like this would be late 80s. And it was at uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's house. And that's her father. And, you know, I'd met at, by that time I was in the movies and I met a lot of celebrities, famous people. But when he walked in, it was like, whoa, oh, my God, is that a famous face to me? Because when I was 12, my favorite film was Some Like It Hot, you know. Yeah. So there are people who you idolized when or that made a huge impact on you when you were a kid oh, that that's different than a contemporary that you respect. Absolutely. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I knew Mike Nichols for 20 years, but I kept pinching myself in, if I was at a dinner with him that I actually knew him because when I was 12, Nichols and May, I thought they were the geniuses of, and they, and then you listen to that out Broadway album. It's still, it could have been recorded yesterday. You know, as, as far as the character work and how funny it is. Yeah, it is, it is amazing uh, that work, and and that's what you were watching when you were twelve, instead of Soupy Sales or something like that. Right. I was listening. No, I was listening. Nichols and May and um, Jerry Lewis and Jonathan Winters, of course, and and Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello. Those are my favorite. love. Laurel and Hardy. Are you, are you a Bob and Ray fan? No, well, no. I think they would be on the radio, like in our kitchen. I, I, I was reminded of Slow Talkers of America uh, last week during the hearings, <laughs> which is a brilliant piece, and I'd recommend anyone to go to YouTube and, and, and find that. Uh, you've been watching the hearings, right? Oh, every one of them. Yes, absolutely. And has anything shocked you? <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, there's nothing from my perspective that I've heard uh, that surprised me at all. You know, I, I, I believe that Trump is capable of saying anything. I do believe that he um, sold Pence down the river and called him a wimp. I believe that completely. It just fits a pattern. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like, uh, it, this has exceeded my expectations. I, I think they've done a great job. Yes, I think they've done a brilliant job. And I don't think that you can ever change the people that are cultish to him. But I know many, many Republican families that I raised my kids with in L.A., and I think they would watch this and be quite affected and start to, even if they had been in that camp of Trump at one point, would really have to say, this is, it's, I can't. If they watch it. But the it, uh, polling shows that people are already moving. People are watching. It's 20 million people. So. Yeah. But, you know, it's, tw which 20 million people? And the MAGA people that you would want to be persuaded aren't are deliberately not watching. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think they'll ever 
be this way. But there are, no, are they won't. There are middle people. Yes, and that's exactly. Uh, but uh, you know, to me, it, 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 and you and I have, have talked about just we need to prosecute this guy, right? Yes, I think it sends a very, very harmful message to America if someone who clearly should be prosecuted isn't. Then it then you can't no longer say that there no man is above the law. Clearly, Donald Trump would be above the law because he's broken it, and they're proven uh, that he's broken it endlessly. So, I, I mean, how do you feel like if you're the common man saying, well, wait a second, I don't get the rules? And my, my question is, is people are saying like, well, we need more. What more do you need than this? He was led a conspiracy to overturn a Democratic election. I know. And, and, and I mean, there, there's no question of that. And in my mind, I mean, I'm, you know, Canadian American, but I, has it ever happened before in the history? No, <laughs> no. I mean, I know that, you know, Nixon uh, was not a pristine, but. Oh, but this is child play compared to. Absolutely correct. And if you think about it, you know, they talked about Gore confirming uh, or certifying, right? When he was vice president, certifying right. Bush. Right. Nixon certified Kennedy. Yes, absolutely. Think about that. I know. And that was a very disputed election because of Illinois and Texas. Absolutely. To me, the only defense is insanity. And, you know, he's not insane. He's just the worst well, person I think, in the world. I, I don't think he's well. The ones that are really shameful to me are the ones who know better who don't have any kind of psychological illness like Trump does, like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and, and Lindsey Graham. These are the ones that deeply in the core of their soul know how wrong Trump and Trumpism and what he stands for and what he's done to democracy. They know that to be true. But I guess they didn't want to work at Blockbuster. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Marty Short. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We're back with Martin Short. Let's talk about uh, only murders in the building. Uh, It's you, Steve, and Selena. One of my favorite things in the show is that you guys are old. And she's young. (laughs) And there was a line in it that I think Steve says to you, which is, they hate it when you call them. Yes, we were trying to communicate with her. We were trying to decide, (laughs) do we phone her 
And Steve said something like, phone calls seem to upset them for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember one time, one time, my, my brother Michael was very funny. He's won many, many, many Emmys for SCTV, from SCTV to Schitt's Creek. Wow. But he, his, he, his son and my son were both the same age, and they were just both on their phones texting, not speaking, and between them was a cheeseburger. And Mike maintained that Henry was texting his cousin, so are you going to finish that? (laughs) (laughs) Verbally ask. No, it's a different thing. And also there's a premise running joke in the show of Steve always signing his texts. And Serena's saying, you know, you don't have to do that. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. You inside a text sincerely, Charles Hayden Savage. You know. Now, in in the thing, you both are in show business. You yes. are, uh, you are director, right? You're. Director. I was a um, uh, theater director, and Steve was an actor. You know, it's always fascinating those people that are. Steve is always fascinated about this. You know, someone who was like immensely popular for about seven years, and then hasn't worked for twenty five. Yeah, and that's his character, yeah, right? And, of course, uh, Steve created this with s- someone else, right? Um, you know what? The Steve story is this, that he was at a party at Sandy Gallons, the great manager. Mm-hmm. And sitting on the couch were three older actors. And Sandy said to Steve, you know, you should write a series for them. And Steve, who is obsessed with true crime, watches all those shows endlessly. So he thought, well, that could be an interesting thing. They live in one building. And he thought about it, and that was it. That was like eight years, ten years ago. And then he had a lunch with Dan Fogelman, who's a tremendous, brilliant writer, director. And um, Dan asked him if he had an idea. And Steve said, well, I do have this idea. And then within eight months, we were in production. And you both play guys who are in show business, because that's all you know. (laughs) Basically, it's true. Yeah. I accept where your truth has led us. <laughs> so this uh, season is, well, well, we'll you know, we, it ended the last season one ended when we were arrested uh, for uh, killing the um, woman who ran the building and Bunny. And so that's how we start off season two. Oh, okay. And, you know, All Shirley right. McLean is in it, Amy Schumer. Whoa. Whoa. Uh, Tina Fey, of course, Nathan is still back. Nathan Lane is back. Oh, Nathan, yeah. Andrea and Martin. Martin. Oh, cool. And this is on Hulu. This is everyone. on Hulu. It's on Hulu. Which is uh, owned by ABC. Is it? Yes. It's ABC you know, I fought Hulu. a lot of the uh, the mergers when I was in the Senate. <laughs> well, you lost because they all were. I know, I know, I know. Now, you're still touring with Steve, but not during the summer, I take it. Uh, no, no, we just did uh, three shows this weekend. I love the show. I love the show. I've seen it twice, and I loved it the first time. First time I saw it was in Phoenix. That's right. I loved it. And uh, then the second time I saw it was in D.C. That's right. Maybe over a year later, I think. And yeah. it was even better. Oh, good. Which it should be after you're doing it for a year and a half. You think it was worse. Steve is probably one of the most disciplined comedians well, he's, he's the most creative human being I've ever experienced in my life, you know. And it, he's always um, thinking and writing and changing. And, and then if it doesn't work, he just laughs it off, you know. Um, uh-huh. But uh, 
I remember seeing Steve. It would be 1980, maybe. I didn't know him because I wouldn't know him for five years, meet him for five years. But I, but he was um, presenting, I think, best comedy album at the Grammys, and he mm-hmm. came out with um, full tails, but boxer underwear and no pants. Mm-hmm. And he didn't acknowledge it, and he just started reading the nominations. And then a man ran out, little bald guy with pants on a hanger, and Steve just looked at him and said, well, it's about time. <laughs> and then he put on the pants and then continued reading. And I thought, well, that's like Mozart. Yes. You know, it's interesting how huge he was during that period, right? Mm. I remember seeing him at the amphitheater in L.A. at the height of Steve Martin, 1978. Right. But um, Danny and John were opening for him as the Blues Brothers. That's right. how big that might I saw him at Avery Fisher Hall in that tour, I think same tour. And the first line was, I've got to stop playing these toilets. <laughs> that was Wild and Crazy Guy and that character, the character he played in his stand-up. Yeah. Is about as different from him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> as, as anyone could be. And I think that there is a tension, which is, He's this huge, huge rock star of comedy. And people think he's kind of that guy. Right. And so I think that was there, knowing Steve as well as you do, was there that tension? Did did that affect him in any way? Well, I don't know. I mean, see, I know when I think of Steve, I think of him kind of like a wild and crazy guy. I mean, he's always doing jokes. He's always with me. If he's very comfortable with you, then he's as, just as funny as you think right. he should be, you know? Yeah. I mean, Steve, but Steve is always right. He has a new joke that he just put in the other night. said, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, well, actually, I turned 77 this summer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so dyslexic. I meant to say 77. <laughs> and it's okay. to me, that's a pure Steve Martin joke. Yes, that's a beautiful joke. Yeah. I have a bifurcated uh, podcast, which is I do uh, a lot of public policy <laughs> and yes. then I do comedians. Yes, exactly. And nothing in between. Uh, sort of that. Yeah. There's uh, hardly any funny. What, about, what, what would you interview Kim Kardashian? I would. I just couldn't. <laughs> I know. I, I, I couldn't interview her. I don't know anything about her. I had dinner once with Kim Kardashian in 2011. And she was really charming and sweet and smart. Doesn't surprise yeah. me in the least. Right. Didn't she? She had a reality show or something, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably showing my ignorance. But, yeah. you know, and a, a lot of that time I was, uh, during time in the Senate, I really was uh, not on that. paying a lot of attention <laughs> to popular culture. <laughs> exactly. So I have, a, I, have a real, I have a little bit of a gap there. I understand. Yeah, and uh, I was taking what I did pretty seriously, <laughs> as do you. Yes. You do. And, uh, well, thank you. This has uh, been uh, been lovely. Well, lovely, Al. Now, do you edit, or is this just raw? We edit. Thank God. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, such, some of the stuff I was, I, I know the stuff I'll edit out to make me look better. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we mainly focus on well, no kidding well I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening that beautiful music is by Leo Kotke the great Leo Kotke 
I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.